Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Damian Cox, the sports journalist, broadcaster, and author. Damian has written for Canada's biggest newspaper, the Toronto Star, for over 40 years. He has been a voice on your radio, co-hosting primetime sports with the Bobcat, Bob McCowan. He did television work for Rogers Sportsnet, including a stint on Hockey Night in Canada. He heads up the committee that annually chooses Canada's male and female athletes of the year, formerly known as the Lou Marsh and now known as the Northern Star Awards. And he has written multiple books, some that do not even require crayons. His latest is Revival, the chaotic, colorful journey of the 1977-78 Toronto Maple Leafs, co-written with his pal and former Maple Leafs general manager, Gord Stellick. Welcome, Damien, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm great. You, you know, we've had such a mild winter, but we have a sunny day today, which is such a nice break uh, for us all. And I'm at uh, my home in Etobicoke, where we've lived for about 20 years. And like a lot of people, getting through winter, looking forward to spring. We all are. May I ask what part of Etobicoke you live in? Because we get very granular here. And, and who makes up the Cox household these days? Well, I'm uh, around the, how uh, best, I guess the Kingsway area is the neighborhood that it's uh, known as. And, you know, our, our, our group is, uh, it expands and it uh, shrinks. So I have uh, four children and two dogs. The two dogs are here pretty much all the time. And three of the four children are here depending on what they're doing in their lives. Two of them are still in university. One travels and comes back and travels and comes back. So we've got a lot of moving parts in this. So safe to say you're still earning and burning. <laughs> and uh, enjoying every minute of having a big family. That's the way to go. Now, Damien, I have to tell you, growing up in my Willowdale household, we got the Toronto Star delivered every single day. And I remain a print subscriber to this day, albeit only on weekends. And therefore, I have not missed a Damien Cox column in the over 40 years that you've been writing for the Toronto Star. This podcast does not fawn over its guests, but I have to tell you, it is a real thrill for me to get to speak to you today. Well, that's nice of you to say. And, uh, you know, when I look back over how long I've been doing this, sometimes it catches me a little bit by surprise. And you know what? I'm grateful. Uh, I I started out... um, Back in uh, 19, the, well, I, I was a Christmas intern at the Toronto Star in December 1984. So I'm now in my fifth different decade of writing for them. And working for them uh, has always allowed me to do a lot of other stuff. So hopefully for anyone who's interested in things I have to say or ideas I have or, or my writing or my broadcasting, there have been lots of different ways that they can uh, listen or, or read uh, what I do. Uh, for those who don't like the stuff I have to say or my ideas or stuff, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> there you go. A mea culpa to everyone. Well, before we dive into some of your particular projects, let's please go all the way back at the Damien Cox story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Well, I'm a, I'm I'm a Hamiltonian by birth. Um, born in nineteen uh, nineteen sixty one to uh, English immigrants, um, who had I was one of six children, uh, so we had a very full house growing up. 
and I grew up on the Hamilton Mountain and lived there until, well, I went to McMaster for four years. So I guess until I was about 21, then I moved to Toronto to go to what was then called Ryerson. And pretty much since then, I've been out of Hamilton. So, you know, my, my particulars were certainly not a hockey family, but more of a tennis family. I mean, that's, you know, I, I was lucky to get to cover a lot of tennis later on in my life as well. So a big group of us, and uh, maybe that's why I ended up with a pretty, what's considered a very large family uh, by today's standards. Well, back then there was no TSN, no Sportsnet, no, no internet. I'm going to assume for you, Damien, that sports was the Hamilton Spectator. Yes, absolutely. And, and CHCH, uh, television, and whatever I might get on CKOC or CHAM or CHML. So those are the radio stations. But yeah, I mean, I grew up reading Bob Hanley, the legendary Bob Hanley in the Hamilton Spectator. And, you know, I, I often reflect upon this because, you know, it, the, the way things were then uh, was, you know, I was I was an avid fan of the Hamilton Tire Cats. And if they went and played out in B.C., I might not hear what the score was for a day or two. I mean, it was just such a a different a different world in that way. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the era where uh, the Hamilton Fin Cups were the most successful team, really, out of uh, out of Hamilton winning Memorial Cups. Um, although the Tide Cups did win in 1972, which I, I can name most of the players on that team. And, yeah, it was mostly um, the spectator. And then I guess... Uh, CHCH, I'm trying to think of who would have been, I guess, Norm Marshall, another Hamilton legend who also did Hamilton Red Wing games as well on TV. Um, and he did a lot of the sports cast as well. So being a sports nut then was very different than being a sports net now because you just didn't have access to nearly as much stuff on television or, or anywhere else as you do now. That's certainly an understatement. Now, Damien, before you moved to Toronto and attended Ryerson, you attended your hometown, McMaster University, earned a degree in political science. I can only imagine how thrilled your parents were when you announced you wanted to pursue journalism school. <laughs> I I can still uh, remember sitting down with my mom and dad and uh, and saying, I you know, I could choose between law school or journalism. Or yeah, law school or journalism, and I said I decided I want to go in and study journalism, and I can remember their faces just falling. Now they denied that, but I think you know, really, when I look back, I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't. I mean, you know, I could have gone to a couple of law schools, not the best ones, because I didn't have the best marks. And you know, I had a couple of influential people, univer- one university prof in particular, who's still out there. His name's Kim Nossel. He's still at Queens today. And he played a huge role in kind of steering me in that direction. Um, I think his father had worked for the Globe and Mail and had been an overseas correspondent. And he really steered me in the direction of journalism. It, it just felt right. I had no information. I had I didn't know anybody. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I don't even sure how much I read newspapers or anything like that. It, it was more... A gut feel, and often gut feels uh, lead you in the right direction. In this case, I think it did for me. Well, it certainly did. Now, as noted, Damien, you actually started at the Toronto Star in 1984, where you began your career on a typewriter. Now, yes. you, you were in full-time status in 1985, 
And in 1989, you moved over to the sports department. Would the majority of your career have been physically centered at the Star's uh, former offices at 1 Young Street at the foot of Toronto's waterfront? Yeah, I mean, when I first joined the Star in 85, they had bureaus in Scarborough, North York, and and out here in Etobicoke. And um, so I actually was in the uh, East Bureau in Scarborough with a pretty good cast of characters. She went on to do a lot of great stuff. So, uh, yeah, that was 1984 and literally chasing fire engines, going to, you know, city council. The big beat out there was the Toronto Zoo. Uh, and my colleague, Kevin Donovan, who's gone on to do tons of stuff. He was, he was really on top of the zoo thing. I, I, so again, I was just sort of trying to figure it all out. And then we'd get stints downtown and the big goal was to end up in the general assignment news pool downtown. And I guess I got there by about 87 or 88. And then the opportunity came to move over to the sports department or they asked me, would I be interested? And I assumed they wanted me to cover high school or something, which would have been great. And if, if I, and it's no cover the Leafs, I went, whoa, cover the Leafs. And I went, I remember going over to talk to the city uh, hall and uh, here and saying, so I'm thinking they've asked me if I want to go do this. So I'm thinking I might want to go over to sports. And he went, why? <laughs> and I didn't really have an answer, but I, I did it and uh, never looked back. Yeah, that's every kid's dream growing up in Toronto to be offered a chance to uh, cover the Leafs. Now, gaming over your career, you've worked in three mediums, print, journalism, radio slash TV, and books. I'll bet you didn't see that coming when you first started out. No, no. No, and in fact, you know, I, I think I was always really interested in politics, and I think I kind of thought in the back of my mind I'd eventually go back to that. But as uh, opportunities began to come forward for me in sports, it just, you know, it started, it made less and less sense to, to go back and do that. And a lot of it for me, you know, to be terribly honest, was, was, was about making a little more money. You know, I, uh, you know, I was paid pretty well as a young reporter at the start, but you know, when radio came along, I mean, that was kind of the first one, you know, with, with the fan back in 92. And then from that, I started to get a few television opportunities, but that didn't really get revved up for another decade. And there were other things that came along. So many I can't even remember, like writing opportunities for different organizations and stuff like that. And for me, with a young, growing family, it was about income. It really was. Um, and... Again, looking back, I mean, all the opportunities I got to try all the different things. I mean, who gets to do that, right? Most of us get locked into a job and you end up doing one thing. And I got to do everything. So I'm pretty lucky. You did get to do everything. Let's talk about a few of these. How was your primetime sports experience co-hosting on the radio with the Bobcat, Bob McCowan? Well, it was great. It was so, so great that I think it happened on three different occasions which means I got fired at least twice, maybe uh, whatever. So Bob and I would get along for a while, then we wouldn't get along, then we'd get along for a while, then we wouldn't get along. We always remained friends. You know, I used to, when I first started out, I was with Gord Stellick, and we we did the afternoon show um, on the fan. And actually, even before that, did a show called Football Sunday with Leo Cahill. And uh, Leo didn't like me. And so we had a, we had, you know, uh, uh, an issue sort of with our show from the very beginning. But then 
Gord came and helped me with that. Then we had our own show. And then I did my own show for a little while, which is kind of like what we what was called the cutting edge, which was sort of a panel show. And that came on just before primetime sports. And eventually, as Bob often called it, Bob called uh, his show the cutting edge, but with listeners. And he, and he wasn't wrong. And so eventually, we kind of folded it into primetime sports. And, it, you know, there were times where uh, I wasn't as available as other times. And so that sometimes became a problem why I couldn't do it full time. Sometimes I shared the the co-hosting. Um, but I can honestly say, you know, most the 90% of the time I really enjoyed working with Bob. It wasn't just one long string. It was sort of here and then go away and then here and then go away. Um, and that's okay. How and why did you get into television work? You know, that's a great question because I do have a face made for radio. I guess it was kind of natural. And as sports radio was expanding, so was 24-hour television. And so my first chances were at uh, TSN. And with John Wells, he had a Sunday morning panel show. So I would do the, I did that for a while. And then ultimately, uh, Dave Hodge took John Wells' spot. And so we did that for a number of years. And so yeah, it was more just... I, I think I would, uh, and then I expanded to other things with TSN. You know, I I was always so lucky that I was put in positions where people said, "Just speak your mind," which is really what I do, probably the best, is speak my mind. I've never been very good at trying to figure out what other people want to hear or anything like that. So, I think television, in particular. Sometimes when they're rights holders and things like that, it's hard for some of the guys on the air to really say all the things they might want to say. And I was never put in that position. And I think I was of some value to them because I would say things that other people wouldn't say. So it was really a whole bunch of events that got me to TSN. And then once we moved along through there to about, I think it was 2011, and then I was Look, I think it's the best thing that can happen to any of us in business is to have a couple of um, people uh, vying for your services. And when that happened with Sportsnet and TSN, that changed everything for me and uh, um, went over to the other side. But for a good decade, it was TSN for me. And how was your experience working on the venerable and legendary Hockey Night in Canada? It was good. I, you know, I often think about that, you know, and it's... Uh, I was there for the most part of two years, maybe a little bit longer. I really struggled to find a regular spot. Um, I remember when it started out, I was on the opening night or first weekend. I was because Rogers had just got the rights, and then I was I was on the panel, and then I wasn't, and then I was in between periods with Elliot, and then I wasn't, and so I suspect. I wasn't as good a fit in those days. They had a lot going on with George Strombolopoulos. And maybe I didn't do a good job. You know, that's also a possibility. I, I don't know. I, I, but I, I can say I'm forever grateful to Keith Pelly and Scott Moore for giving me... The, look, I got to be on Hockey Night in Canada. How cool is that? And got to learn a lot. Got to work with some really good people. And probably learned that, you know what? TV at that level is not that easy. You know, and maybe it wasn't my strongest thing, but it was fun to have to to give it a try. I think it's a great experience. 
Now, Damien, whether you have a face for TV or not, you were now on TV. People now knew what you looked like and could actually start accosting you in person on the street. Did, did that happen or did you like the feedback? I've never been accosted. Uh, of all the times, and it still happens, people come up, which shows you the power of television, that people come up and say, and what's nice these days is because I haven't been doing television for a couple of years, they often come up and say, really like your writing which I kind of uh, uh, like as well. But yeah, I mean, there were, I was never really that comfortable with it. You get the feeling that people are looking at you. I was never uncomfortable with people coming up and talking to me because they were always nice. You know, I think when you go on social media and all these brave souls can say what they know and they tell you this, they tell you that they're not going to walk up to your face and do it. And generally speaking. And, uh, and so, you know, my experience was, has been always really good and it's not i'm a bit of an introvert when it comes to being in public but when people are that nice you know i got better at it too and and you know engaging people because it's a, a bit of a skill and i sort of went from walking through and kind of trying to not make eye contact or making eye contact and whoever wants to chat i'm happy to chat if i've got time so Again, it's been another one of those things that's been a learning experience. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's a skill. It's great. It's a good skill to have. Now, how'd you get into writing books? And how have you enjoyed what must be a very different creative process relative to writing newspaper columns? Yeah, very different. I, I mean, I didn't get in playing to write a whole bunch, but I remember I was on a plane flight out west. This would have been 2003, 2004, and it just really struck me that not only that I thought it was, uh, that it was timely to write a book on the 67 Maple Leafs, the last Leaf team to win a, a cup, but that I really wanted to do it with Gord Stellick because uh, I'd never done a book, so I thought working as part of a team made a lot of sense. Also, I really felt strongly that you know covering the Leafs as a journalist means you have to be dispassionate about it. You have to, well, you can't be a fan. And Gord had this, because he'd worked for them, he had this great love for the organization. And I really felt that that combination would yield the best possible way to tell the story of, of the 67 Leafs. So it was my idea, but Gord jumped at it right away. And, you know, we figured out a way to, to do it. You know, I do most of the writing. And it's really, we, the most recent one we did, we kind of did it the same. I do the writing. Gord does a lot of the interviews. But Gord also kind of gives to me sort of a, a general feel of how we want a book to, to come across to people. Um, so that's how we got into it. 67, it was, uh, I don't know, I, it, to people asking, how'd your book do? How many books you sell? I have no idea. But I feel like that one was just, uh, was a success and it was a good book. And from there, just sort of started uh, getting other opportunities to uh, to do a bunch of different things. Uh, yeah, it was another one of those things. And then eventually even expanded that to, I wrote a book on the 92-93 Maple Leafs, the team that lost to the Los Angeles Kings in the semifinals, and then ended up doing an audio version. So that was another learning experience and a different thing as well. So books have always been more labor of love than anything. Another way to express yourself, uh, you know, to sort of write at, at length on things. Well, it's a great jumping off point to talk about your newest book, Revival, The Chaotic, Colorful Journey of the 1977-78 Toronto Maple Leafs, co-written, as you noted, with Gord Stellick. 
Now, Damien, writing and marketing a book about a single hockey season, in fact, a single season that did not even end with a championship, this seems like a project that could only happen in Toronto, the center of the universe. <laughs> I think that's right. And you know what? I think from the very beginning, again, this was uh, Gordon and I, uh, this time it was on a phone conversation because I re- I tried to reach him after the death of Boreas Salman um, for a piece I was doing for the Toronto Star. And Gord, being Gord, got back to me three days later, which was useless for the piece of the Toronto Star. But then we started talking about Bory and that team, and right away it came, maybe we should do something on this. That's sort of how it, it came together. We started writing about that. And, and a really big part of it I, I, we talked a lot about early was we have to be able to say why. Why are we writing this book? You know, it's easy to say, well, you're writing about the 67 Leafs because they won the championship. Or, you know, you're writing a book on Martin Brodeur because he's the best goalie in the world. Or, um, you know, things like that. In this case, not only did this team not win the championship, they didn't get to the final, and then they were almost quickly wiped off the mat by uh, by the decisions of their owner, Harold Ballard, and his people who were working for him. So, you know, why did it matter? And I, I kind of feel that we were able to tell that story. I hope people feel that way who've read the book. But I think a big part of it is it's very similar to the 1993 Montreal Expos, who were the best team in baseball in the World Series was right out. And when you have that kind of question hanging out over the whole thing, what if, what if the Expos had been able to play for the World Series that year? And what if Puncher Mac hadn't traded away uh, Lanny McDonald and Mike Palmatier and Ian Turnbull and all those guys, and that group had been kept together? What could those Leafs have accomplished? Maybe not much more, but I think that makes for an interesting story. And boy, that Leaf team was just filled with interesting people too. Well, I do love the choice. Uh, just to remind everyone, the Leafs that year went on a crazy playoff run with Lanny McDonald's overtime winner in Game 7, eliminating the New York Islanders, the same Islanders that would subsequently go on to win four straight Stanley Cups. But as you know, Damien, there has to be a why, and I guess this all took place in that 70s decade when the team was on the bubble of relevancy before kind of everything burst in the 80s made them the laughing stock of the league. Yeah, that's right. So they won the cup in 67, then everybody got fired, and then they were really not very good for 70, 71, 72, and then um, Harold Ballard hired Red Kelly out of, uh, well, when Ballard was in jail, he hired him out of a out of a prison cell, and that started, and all of a sudden they and getting better, and Jim Gregory, the general manager, was patching together some talent. They managed to somehow get Boreas Salming and Inga Hammerstrom out of Sweden, and they began to be competitive. They played these very exciting series against the Philadelphia Flyers, and then they had this breakthrough series against the New York Islanders. So it really was a period of about four or five years where it looked like the Maple Leafs could be uh, relevant again and maybe champions again, and that it was all dashed quickly, and they went into this dark period of about 15 years. And that's why we called the book Revival. You know, there was the excitement of 67, and then there was the crazy 70s, and this brief period where everybody got excited about the Leafs again, that they really could be a meaningful team, and then it went away again. Well, focusing on a single season gives you in-depth knowledge of all of the actors involved. 
Therefore, Damien, I want to ask you for an impression or a story about each of the main players. Let's start with Captain Daryl Sittler, who, by the way, scored 117 points in that 80-game season, which was third highest in the entire NHL. Yeah, I mean, that, that was Sittler at his, at his very best. And I think what you really hear is, when you talk to players, is what a leader he was. In, in, a, in a really, really very much a leader. And I know Bruce Boudreaux, uh, he, he played for the Leafs or tried to get on those Leaf teams, but he could never quite crack the lineup for an extended period of time. And he tells a story of one day leaving practice and Sittler literally grabbing him by, by a collar and, and almost pushing him against the wall. And he said, you can't practice like that. If you're going to be a great player, you can't practice like that. You've got to do better. And Boudreaux, of course, went on to be a pretty successful head coach in the National Hockey League. But that's the kind of thing leaders could do back then. I'm not so sure that you can do those same things in today's NHL. But Stittler is held in such high esteem by all the players who played on that team. And not everybody is. You know, not everybody is held in high esteem. Not everybody loved Roger Nielsen, the coach. You know, but Stittler really is held in very high esteem, I think, by all the people associated with that team. Well, to me, Damien, he's still my captain after all these years. How about Daryl's running mate, Lanny McDonald? You know, I think, uh, you know, he's so associated with that goal that he scored to win that series against the Islanders. But I think what was really interesting about him was that he was a high first round pick who didn't make it right away. He struggled. He really struggled to the point where he almost looked like he was going to be a blown pick, that a guy who didn't turn out. And he became very close friends uh, with Sittler. And that was a big part of it. And a big part of it, this sounds almost quaint looking back, was, and we talk about it in the book, Lanny got married, you know, to his long-term sweetheart. And she moved to Toronto. And they became close with the Sittlers. And that stability, I think, for who he was, and the athlete he was began to bring the best out of him. And he also talks a lot about how Red Kelly was so good to him. You know, instead of, you know, getting on his case, you know, uh, Punch Imlac during the 60s had been really tough on talented players like Carl Brewer and Frank Mahoblich. And Red Kelly, who had been on those some of those lead teams in the 60s, very different approach. Despite being an old-school hockey guy, very different approach to a young, struggling hockey player. And that made a huge difference to, to Lanny. How about the late, great Boria Salman? Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't really get a chance, certainly not to cover him. And I only met him once or twice, sort of in passing. Gord, again, and that's why working with Gord is so great. Gord knew him very, very well. He's kind of now, because of the way his life tragically ended, it in some ways has made him even larger than life than he was. He was so unusual. He wasn't the first uh, Swedish player, European player to get a full-time position in the NHL. That was Tommy Bergman in Detroit. We talk a lot about, a lot about that. But to come into the NHL at a time where, you know, goon hockey was, was just really get coming on and being worse and worse and worse was, you know, so tough on a guy like Borea. And he wasn't afraid. He was a tough guy in his own right from his days in Sweden. He had gotten all kinds of trouble over there. 
he wasn't afraid. People thought he was afraid or thought he could be pushed around. He wasn't afraid at all. But boy, he he really took a lot of shots and it took a fair bit of courage for him, you know, to to hang in there. And he was just a brilliant player, brilliant athlete. He just loved the game. Loved the game. And loved being a leaf. I mean, he stayed in Toronto for until the late, you know, nineteen nineteen eighties, when a lot of after everybody else on that team was gone, Boria was still giving it his best. For some reason, he and Ballard got along great. No one really knows why. And I think he was just kind of a legendary athlete. You get Jim McKenney to talk about him. He said this guy could have been a star in any sport he wanted to play. He was just that great enough. Well, it was a famous story that he'd show up for Leaf games and he could still see the suntan lines from his ski mask because he'd been skiing all day and then showed up at the game and played better than anyone. How about Boria's partner on D, Ian Turnbull? Ian was, you know, and this is another one where Gord was such a, uh, it was great to work with Gord because Gord got Ian on the phone and they know each other. I doubt Ian Turnbull would have told me the stories that he told Gord. It's just, you know, I don't think he had ever had a whole lot of time for the media. And I think that he was a guy who was about as different from Salmi as you could imagine because Ian Turnbull didn't love the game, wasn't a dedicated player. He said, I was just kind of good at it. I didn't love it. I didn't think I'd do it for a long time, but I was good at it, so I, I, that's why he did it. Um, he was really into music, um, got to know... You know, a lot of the top-end uh, Toronto musicians, you know, he played a little guitar, so he got to jam with those guys a little bit. And so that was exciting for him. And I think downplays his contribution to that 77-78 team, although everybody else looked back and said, because Boria got hurt in the playoffs. And a lot of it, he looks back and says, you know, he played like a superstar that season. But he didn't like Nielsen. He refused to play for Nielsen when he had the opportunity as a junior player. And then when he, uh, Nielsen got hired to coach the Leafs, Turnbull just assumed he'd be out the door the next day. And he ended up playing um, some pretty spectacular hockey for Roger. And then, you know, kind of a microcosm of the whole thing. Before he knew it, Turnbull was gone, you know, and, and off to L.A. and off to do different things. Never played anywhere near as well again. Well, he certainly seems like a bit of a unique or maybe even prickly character. I have to share the epic story. I chased Ian Turnbull almost as hard as I chased down Damian Cox. And when I finally got his contact info, I wrote him a nice note inviting him on the podcast. And most people just ignore me, you know, if they don't want to do it. He wrote me an email. Dear Andrew, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I think there is nothing I would rather do less than be on your podcast. But thank you and good luck, Ian Turnbull. <laughs> sounds like him. That sounds like him. And I guess just to tell you another quick story from the book, that was who he was. And if he didn't, you know, he didn't like practicing, so he'd go around and he'd like pick over the pylons that Roger Nielsen would set up and do stuff. That was just who Ian Turnbull was. Quite a character. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. 
All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Dave Tiger Williams somehow accumulated 351 penalty minutes in the season, which is unfathomable today. Yeah, I mean, that was a different era, right? I mean, you, there aren't players like that today. Fascinating character in his own right and ended up uh, forging a lifelong friendship with Sittler and McDonald in particular. Those guys are still very close friends. Sittler will say and says in the book, you know, uh, these guys, are they've been my best friends for my whole adult life. Um, and I think Tiger was obviously a very different character. And what plays into the series against the Islanders and makes it interesting is he was very close with Brian Trottier when they played junior hockey together. They were actually blood brothers, literally blood brothers. And so it was very difficult for them to have to face each other. And, and you know, they'd sneak off before games and and meet or after, but they didn't want anybody to know because they wanted to be seen as real competitors. Um, And I think Tiger was a guy who just competed, not just the fighting, but he competed at such a level that made that team really hard to play against. I I think, you know, you talk to people who played against the Leafs of that era, they were no fun to play against most of the time because – they would hack you, they'd bang you, they'd bite you, they'd uh, make your life miserable. Mike Murphy in the book talks about he played right wing for the Kings. They played the Leafs in the first round that year. So he'd be going either against Tiger or Pat uh, Boutet or Dan Maloney. And he says, I had like black marks all over my arms and sticks and stuff like that. You know, the Leafs were a miserable team to play against at that time. And they, you know, they would really do almost anything to win. And Tiger really personified that. And he personified the state of the NHL at that time when goon hockey was really at its apex. Well, Damien, you bring up Brian Trottier. He was the Islander captain. He's a Hall of Famer. And he has said that the difference maker in the playoff series was Mike Palmatier. What are your thoughts or impressions of the popcorn kit? Uh, without Palmatier, they wouldn't have beat the Islanders. They wouldn't even got to overtime for Lanny to score that goal. Um, and Palmatier was a unique figure and sort of in that bridge between the time when goalies were starting to wear masks and about the late 80s, early 90s, when they started, the equipment began to change dramatically. So he was an athletic goalie despite the fact he had all kinds of really problematic knee problems. And I, I think because of the way he played the position, he played forward growing up, and so he was a really good skater, and he loved to come out of his net. And he played the game with imagination you know, and, and creativity as a goaltender, very different from what you see in the NHL today. And I think in that way, he was able to inspire his teammates. And certainly in Game 7 against the Islanders, he made a couple of saves. One in particular where he was literally behind the net and the puck was coming out in front and he managed to get out and make a, an incredible save. And and those made his teammates say, huh, maybe maybe it is our turn to win this series. And that's the way it happened. Roger Nielsen was the coach. And I think kind of in hindsight or later, and perhaps after he'd already passed, is when he got all kinds of credit. But what are your thoughts yeah. on Coach Roger Nielsen? 
Well, he was a man ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Um, you know, certainly uh, the use of video in hockey, the use of uh, various analytics and statistics that seem kind of rudimentary now, but at that time were revolutionary. And he was quite a guy uh, by all accounts. People who played for him in junior hockey, um, you know, they spawned what a lot of people call the Peterborough Mafia, guys who went on to coach and play and do all kinds of stuff in the NHL. And the contrast with him, too, was, though, you know, he really liked the goon hockey. You know, he liked the fights. He liked, he believed in intimidation. He believed in stretching the rules as far as they could possibly be stretched. And that was part of what uh, went into, you know, making that team successful. Again, he was there for a relatively limited period of time. They tried to fire him uh, the next year, and then we had the whole paper bag incident. And, you know, looking back with that team and how that season turned out, which was unsuccessful, was, you know, maybe they needed to report him or replace him. Maybe he was only there to be successful for a relatively short period of time. And then, as you say, went on to do tons of stuff and become a beloved figure in the game, not just in Peterborough, but everywhere throughout the hockey. Again, like Borea, a guy who I had a little bit to do with, didn't get to mean enough but Gord knew Roger really really well he was a he was a different dude he was and and not just in hockey but in life he looked at life and looked at uh, you know relationships uh, in a very different kind of way and uh I you know guys and people just loved him for who he was that's you know uh, and that's when you when you look back all of us when we look back if you can have as many people willing to say as many great things about you when it's over as Roger Nielsen had, then you, you've made an impression and you've lived a pretty good life. Agreed. And that brings us to the biggest name when you talk about Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1970s. We could do a whole podcast or perhaps a whole series on this one gentleman, the irascible owner, Harold Ballard. Yeah. To be honest, uh, I really felt as we are doing this book, that I didn't want to make it a lot about Harold. And that was for two reasons. Uh, one, I think enough has been done on Harold Ballard and maybe not enough on the players and the coaches and the executives that were involved in the Leaf team at that time. But also, um, and Lanny talks about in the book, Harold was pretty happy that year. He he didn't mess up that team. He didn't get involved and say t- things in the papers like he had before and create controversies and do all sorts of stuff. He was, he kind of was happy, particularly in the playoffs when they got rolling. I think he liked the idea that all of a sudden the Leafs were being competitive, but it didn't last long, right? It didn't last long. By the next season, one more year, King Clancy was whispering in his ear, let's bring back Punch in Black. And, and of course, everything went downhill from there. So everybody has their impression of. Uh, Harold Ballard. Gord, you know, because he worked for him and close from Gord finds it a real difficult relationship to like he he doesn't slag Harold. He he, he loved Harold. But he also understands that Harold didn't do the things that were necessary to make the Leafs a winning team and often didn't do very nice things. But then Gord on from the inside saw him do really nice things and be you know, for charities and for stuff like that. So Harold was a complicated guy. I think Gord has a complicated uh, memory of him 
And for people like you and I, we just look back at him and see him as the guy who wrecked the franchise, which ultimately he did. But for that one year, he kind of kept his hands off it. And maybe that's why they were successful that year. Well, it's a great example. There's no such thing as black and white, and certainly not with Harold Ballard. An interesting side note, Damien, I want your thoughts on. Borea Salming's imported partner from Sweden, the great Inge Hammerstrom, barely played for the Leafs that season. He only got into three games before he was traded to the St. Louis Blues in exchange for Jerry Butler. Yeah, and Butler ends up uh, uh, making one of the really terrible hit on Mike Bossy in the playoff series against the uh, Islanders, which was really unfortunate. But, you know, I think Inga had a complicated relationship with the NHL. It really, he wasn't as good as a fit, obviously, as Salming was. And I think what people forget was it may have been easier for Salming because he played defense versus Hammerstrom as a forward to move into the tighter ranks and do the things you had to do. In some ways, it was more difficult. But, I mean, Ballard made it twice as difficult by his comments, you know, about being able to go into a, a corner with a carton of eggs and not break any of them. And, I mean, that just devastated Hammerstrom. We write about it in the book. That, you know, he still to this day says, why would he have said that? And, it, you know, it left a scar over him. And this was at a time when, you know, the insecurity of Canadian hockey players and Canadian hockey fans was... They didn't want to hear that how great Europeans were. They they wanted to hear how scared they were and how we could scare them and they wouldn't be able to stand up to it. And Hammerstrom was, I guess, an example of a player who wasn't able to translate his talents from Europe to uh, the NHL as successfully as Salming. But he still did all right and then went on to a really successful career as a scout. Ironically, he ended up being a scout for the Philadelphia Flyers, one of the teams that made his life miserable. So I guess that's a case of what goes around comes around. Now, another interesting side, though, Damien, was Johnny Bauer an assistant coach on that team? Um, no, but he was kind of around, I think, as a scout and a goalie instructor and a few different things. And I think on one of uh, Hammerstrom's and Salming's first ever practices, Bauer went in the net. He'd been retired for a few years. He was probably 50 years old. Nobody knew how old, old he was. But he was still around. And, you know, in some ways, that was a case of the Leafs. Not You know, by then, the Montreal Canadiens were really starting to move ahead in scouting. And the Leafs weren't progressing as quickly. They were leaning on guys like Johnny Bauer, just been around for a long time. George Armstrong, who had been great for the team to do these jobs for these teams, you know, and uh, Johnny hung around for a long, long time. But on that team, there really wasn't uh, assistant coaches at that time to the degree there are now there. You know, I think uh, Roger, Roger Nielsen had some people working in the background with him, but he was the guy behind the bench. Nowadays, I can't imagine NHL head coaches being back behind the bench by themselves. Now, that you've been through this huge project, you put all this work and time into it. I know you're not monitoring book sales. Your watch doesn't beep every time one gets sold, but <laughs> what's the feedback been to your book and uh, how fulfilling is that to hear from readers? You know, how is the book doing? I think okay, you know, and I'm hoping more people will buy it. So people will listen to your bar podcast maybe and will buy it or read it, but it's just, it's more important to me in a lot of ways that this story got told uh, again and with the benefit of hindsight. 
And it's out there and it'll be out there for a long, long time. So it might be 20 years from now, somebody will pick it up and say, I heard about this team. Oh yeah, this book. So that means more to me than however we might sell this time around. Damien, some people say you are better off not to meet your heroes because it has the potential to be a real disappointment. But over your career, you've interacted with a ton of well-known athletes. So I'm going to ask you for both the good and the bad. Firstly, who have you met in person who really blew you away and exceeded your expectations as a person? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I mean, the one who always jumps to my mind was, uh, has, who's always been good to me has been Wayne Gretzky. And I wouldn't say I was a Gretzky confidant, uh, like maybe some of the other guys in the media business was, but he was always good to me. And I remember first interviewing him in his car outside his practice facility in LA when he was organizing, I remember during one of the lockouts and, uh, he was taking a team over to Europe and I, for whatever reason, I wasn't going that year. And he came up to me after his press conference and said, you're not coming with us. And like, he had an ability to like, to make you feel and still has an ability to make you feel important. Interviewed him for the 92, 93 book. Wayne, we're not tight. Like a lot of people would tell you they're tight with him. He is always good to me. And so I have a lot of time for Wayne Gretzky. And of course, you know the flip side's coming, Damien. Who have you met in person who really disappointed you to the point where, frankly, you wish you had just never actually met them? <laughs> you know, well, here's one for you. Because he was beloved in Toronto. I never got along with Pat Quinn. And the weird thing was, he's a Hamilton guy. And we actually did get along until he was hired by the Leafs. And then for a brief period... And then by the end, we just wouldn't speak to him, each other. I remember at an NHL draft trying to going up to him and saying, look, I know we're not getting along, but it would be helpful if we did. Why don't we sit down and try to work out whatever the problem was? And he had, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll get in touch with it. He never did. I found Pat Quinn to be a bully and a blowhard, but people loved him. So uh, he would be one, he would be a person. But I mean, I didn't hate the guy. I just... I just sort of found him to be not my cup of tea and a bit of a phony, but maybe he thought the same about me. You know, I, I never got into this business. I got into this as a journalist, and I never got into it to be friends with people. I have a few people um, who I still retain as friends, um, a very lost people. Tom Curvers and I were very tight. He died a couple of years ago, which was really sad. You know, and a lot of people, journalists, I would say, do. They want to have lifelong friends. I I just never really saw that as what I was supposed to do. Damien, you've been great with your time. Let's close with this. What are you working on today? And do you have anything in the hopper? What's next for Damien Cox? I'm working on my golf game. I'm working on being a better, uh, a better dad, a better husband, a better dog owner. You know, I'm probably maybe semi-retired. I still write some columns for the Toronto Star. We've had a handshake agreement for 10 years now. 10 years now. Who who gets to have just a handshake agreement in the media? Um, and I'm sure one day that, that, that uh, and probably one day soon, I'm going to hear from them. They're going to say, uh, that's enough. That's enough out of you. Um, and I have no plans to write another book. I've been... You know, a few people have approached me about podcasts. Yeah, I really have to say, Andrew, you know, in a lot of ways, 
I've had my turn. I've had my say. I'm happy to participate. They still call me every once in a while to go on the radio and talk. Uh, uh, my friend Ben Ennis calls me the leaf historian, and I don't mind playing that role, but I really like the fact that uh, it's somebody else's turn now, and I'm happy to sit back and uh, work on my golf game. I love what you're saying. Semi-retired is great. Doesn't commit you to anything. You can enjoy your golf. You can enjoy your opportunities. <laughs> and you do enjoy your social media, a little at least. Where can we best follow you? A little. Well, I'm, you know, Adamos Finn is sort of it's my, my thing still. I actually have my own website now, adamosfinn.com. Uh, so people can find bits and pieces of me there. I'm not doing as much on that as I probably should. So I don't know. We'll see what 2024 brings. Well, Damien, I will keep following you and I will keep reading you in my great copy of the Toronto Star. I want to thank you again for your time. It was a real pleasure to get to meet you, hear all your stories, and want to wish you, of course, continued success. And to the listeners, on behalf of Damien Cox, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.